Hello and welcome to Beyond Markets by Julius Baer, a series featuring conversations with experts to share recent market developments, key insights and strategic inputs from around the globe. In each episode, we cut through the noise to bring practical advice and macro research on today's shifting economic and market landscape. Please listen to the important legal information at the end of this podcast. Hello and welcome to our podcast series, Beyond Markets. I am Jenai, Equity Analyst with the Julius Baer Equities Research Team based in Singapore. Today, we will be talking to Mr. Lo Ping, founder and CEO of Unlisted Collection, an umbrella brand with a portfolio of unique boutique hotels and restaurants. One of Ping's restaurants, the Majestic Restaurant, is right here in our office building at Marina One, Singapore, and where we often entertain. So we at Julius Bear are no strangers to his hospitality. Hi, Ping. Good to have you with us on Beyond Markets. Hi, Jenai. Thank you for having me. Most welcome. In its first big move to lift border restrictions, Singapore will pilot quarantine-free travel lanes for vaccinated passengers from Germany and Brunei from 8th September. This follows the decision to unilaterally ease restrictions on inbound travel from Hong Kong and Macau at the end of August after travel bubble talks ceased. The world is watching closely as Singapore breaks ranks with COVID-0 nations and pivots towards treating the virus as endemic. Domestically, I believe no sector is watching with greater anticipation than the hospitality sector. International arrivals in the first quarter of this year were just 3% of what they were a year ago, and revenue per available room or REFPA for hotels collapsed to 64 Singapore dollars, almost on par with the $36 seen during the SARS crisis and a far cry from the $200 pre-COVID. Our latest figures also show that food and beverage sales, while up year-on-year in May, due to the low base effect last year, are still below pre-COVID levels. Now yet, there is also hope that the sector is turning around. Several big events of the kind cancelled earlier are scheduled to go ahead in the next few months. Ecosparity Week, a conference organised by Termasic, is slated for September, followed by two more big conferences in November, the Milken Institute's Asia Summit and Bloomberg New Economy Forum. What does the future hold for the hospitality sector as Singapore reopens? Now, to unpack this question, let's take a step back and do a quick stock take of the past one and a half years. Ping, what a ride the past 18 months have been. How has COVID changed the way that hospitality players like yourself see your business? And how have priorities been reordered? I think this, honestly, this crisis has been, I would say, a bit of a tsunami wave. And I think one of the first things that struck me was global, right? We have uh, restaurants and hotels in Australia in Ireland, in the UK, and in China. Virtually everything was hit at once. It was an unprecedented situation. You know, when it first hit, we we didn't really know what to do. We had to quickly reorder all our contingency plans, right, which meant that we had to lower our costs. We had to do all sorts of things in, in very, very quick order. So it was, I would say, for anyone in the hospitality industry, it was a very, very difficult time. But 18 months later, I would say we have learned a lot of lessons. I think everyone in the hospitality industry is a lot, if you survive these 18 months, you're a lot more resilient. You probably have a lot more sort of aware of, I guess, the conditions on the ground and, and what you need to do to adapt. Ping, could you share with us some of the changes that have been adopted across the industry in order to deal with this new world order and this very changed business environment? Okay, one of the things I would say is that we have done is, is all across the world is everyone has now 
gotten up to speed with uh, things like social distancing, mask wearing, enhanced sort of things with uh, hygiene. I think that's the first step, right? Whether you're a hotel or restaurant. The second thing that all of us have done is, of course, that we have all learned to what one of the first things I said to my guys, right? You've got to build up much larger reserves every time the restaurants have the ability to open up. So one of the things we've been doing is every time we've been allowed to open up, we've been squirreling away as much money as possible because I think one of the things you don't know is when you can operate safely again or when you might be shut down again. So that's one of the resiliency lessons that we've learned, right? If you look at most, hotels are a little different, but most restaurants have at most one month of operating kind of funds squirreled away. And I've told my guys, you need a minimum of three months now. So that's kind of the guidance we've been giving our managers and we've been diligently kind of making that happen, right? The other thing, of course, is that the staff are now also much more aware of the sacrifices they have to make if, if things shut down again. So there are various things across the world. Some of the things, obviously, is totally out of our hands, but whether or not a shutdown happens, right? But if a shutdown does happen, then we are prepared to make sure that we are the ones who can get out the other side of the tunnel. At the moment, it's for us, it's really about that. It's really about sort of making sure we have the resources to get past these shutdowns. Well, I think Winston Churchill was the one who said, never waste a good crisis. And it's great to see the whole industry taking the chance to reinvent itself, to adopt more financially resilient practices and just ride out this crisis in much better shape. For us, because we operate in so many different markets, right, we get a good sense of what's working, which strategies have worked for the various governments in terms of the COVID strategies, what sort of different assistance measures have come in different markets, and which are the more effective ones. The UK, they suspended VAT, for example, they were helping out with salaries, but didn't help with rentals. In Singapore, they have rentals and salaries, but we didn't get suspension of GST, things like that. Australia also, you know, they had wage measures, things like that. All these things were designed to keep businesses afloat and jobs intact as much as possible. And so across the various markets, we tapped into the different subsidies that were available. But I think you could see that different countries with their different strategies, which was more effective, right? So we adopted different strategies throughout wherever we were operating, and that required a lot of juggling on our part. Unlike most groups, we, we have a fairly global exposure. So it just meant that we were having to tap different schemes in different countries and being alive to all the different schemes that are available. That was the other, obviously, the other strategy that we had to adopt, but it's probably quite different from a pure Singapore operator. Maybe in this same vein, given your very rich experience of operating in different global gateway cities, as we navigate the post-COVID new world order, what would you consider as some of the more unique opportunities enjoyed by the Singapore hospitality sector versus other countries? and also some of its more unique challenges. The first thing to say is that the policy response in Singapore was probably much stronger than in most other countries, right? You had a fairly sort of top-down approach to the subsidies, but it was effective in that it meant that it was able to move very different interest groups. For example, landlords, right? In Singapore, they mandated landlords give relief. The government gave some relief too. So we had a total of four months relief last year, which was a tremendous help in terms of helping the industry survive. And they had all sorts of training schemes, which meant you could send your staff to various training schemes and the government would support the salaries in the meantime. We could see Singapore's first round of subsidies was incredibly generous and it kept a lot of the industry afloat when otherwise they would have failed, given that the income had dropped drastically, right? Because in takeout, you might only do 30 to 40% of your normal revenue streams. 
So the policy response was very strong and very, very, very effective. The other thing that we obviously noticed subsequent to that was that Singapore's very effective control of the virus meant that we were able to open for large periods of time, which again meant that we probably were able to build up much larger reserves in Singapore than we were in other places. If you look at UK, because they had such a long lockdown and they had such a protracted issue with their virus control that for long periods, we were locked down in the UK and in Ireland, which meant that our businesses were really suffering there. Of course, the government gave subsidies for wages. They suspended things like business rates, which was a huge help. But fortunately, in the UK and Ireland, we own our own property, so we didn't have the issue of paying rent. But if we saw what happened was a lot of our industry peers in restaurants who were paying rental to landlords were wiped out, right? Because it didn't matter how much subsidies they got from for salaries. But the fact is, a lot of their fixed costs came from rental and things like that. And the government didn't mandate that landlords had to help. So a lot of strong, really good players in the F&B industry were wiped out purely for that reason. So I think it depended on what sector you were in and how you were set up. But if you didn't have the government help in things like rental, it was unsustainable. Well, it's great that the policymakers here have been very supportive of the F&B and hotels industry. But what would you consider as some of the more unique challenges that the industry has faced during this period and in the coming New World Order? For a place like Singapore, I think one of the big factors is, of course, the lack of any international travellers or any tourists or the normal mice market, right? And in a market like Singapore, where we normally see 19 million visitors a year, this has been catastrophic for the hospitality industry, obviously. No matter what subsidies or rental help you get, the fact is if you don't generate the kind of revenue that you get from 19 million visitors a year, then that's a very, very big hole to patch. And you could really see that in the hotel industry could see that very much in the hospitality industry at large, whether it was from the cruise industry to hotels to anything that tourism related. If you look at Singapore Expo, they, they've had to pivot to do things like the Changi meet and greet thing. And then after that, they're now doing a care facilities. So I think everyone in the industry that was related to tourism or travel in Singapore really had to pivot because 18 months is too long to hang on without trying an alternative business model. And I think the SHN is slowly, gradually uh, easing off as infection rates start to drop and border control measures have been refined to a point where they don't have a huge amount of people coming in who are infected. All the different measures that we had earlier in the year for the industry is starting to ease off, but without travelers coming back yet. So I think you're going to find maybe a six-month to nine-month period towards the end of this year and the first half of next year where you are, you are going to see a lot of the different measures that industry has been doing now with SHN and all this being withdrawn at the same time as travellers aren't coming back in big waves yet. So it may be 23 before you see travellers coming back in any sort of meaningful numbers, particularly from markets like China and Indonesia, which comprise the largest part of our travel pie. And that just means that many hotels will have a terrible 2022 all the way up to 23 still, as the different measures from SHN are withdrawn, but travellers aren't coming back. And I think it's really up to them to try and adapt faster and to take different measures. I think one of the things we've also seen is, of course, people in the cruise industry have reacted much faster than people in the hospitality. And by hospitality, I mean hotel industry in general. If you look at the cruise industry, if you look at their order books for 22, they are pretty full already. And the cruise industry has adapted the fastest among all the travel industries. They've they've reconfigured their ships to taken fresh air to every room. They've done all the PCR testing on every passenger that goes on board. They do regular testing, cleaning, all that. 
so they you know even with the 50% rule and the sailings have been safe and they have been very very busy and if you look at whether it's in Singapore or overseas America Europe they're starting to open up and they've reacted the fastest and they seem to have recovered the quickest the rest of the industry has not really uh, taken the same step i think we can definitely take a leaf out of the cruise industry in terms of how we can adapt quickly as well as rise to the challenges posed by COVID. You have a very interesting cross-sectoral perspective, given that you run both F&B as well as hotel businesses in your portfolio. And it came to our attention as we were looking at the portfolio of companies within your group that Unlisted has five hotels and over 20 restaurants across five countries. But it's the Asian side of the business that is heavily biased towards restaurants and F&B. And in fact, I think there are no hotels at all in Unlisted's Asian portfolio at the moment, whereas it's a completely different story for Europe and Australia. I think a lot more hotels and fewer F&B names. Now, this wasn't always the case because I remember Hotel 1929 and New Majestic Hotel, both started by you, dominating the boutique hotel scene in the early noughties. So I just want to ask you for hospitality players like yourself, is this a reflection of changing opportunities in the hotel versus F&B space in Singapore? Where would it be a better place right now to be in? And will COVID tilt this balance in future? You hit upon an interesting kind of observation. Yes, we have pivoted away from hotels in Singapore. I'll try not to dwell too much on it, but I'll give you a good flavor of why we did it. I think if you look at the early investments that we did, 1929, New Majestic, Wanderlust, these were kind of in the early 2000s. And at that time, Buying into shop houses was relatively cheap. You know, we were buying into shop houses at three, four hundred dollars a square foot and converting them into hotels. In many cases, the first few properties that we did actually were distressed assets, right? We were buying them off property auctions and things like that when these hotels were going into distress after the Asian financial crisis, in fact. And at that time, shop houses just weren't popular. They were cheap to buy. And we converted the first few into hotels, the larger blocks that we had. And they were successful because boutique hotels in Singapore in the early 2000s was, didn't really exist, right? You had the a particularly sort of heritage boutique hotels that we were doing. You had the big chains and then you had the budget hotels. There was nothing in between. So we probably came into a sweet spot in Singapore at a time when there was nothing else of that nature. And also manpower costs in the industry was much cheaper at the time. So our first few hotels, we managed to get very good yields from them. But as time went on, by the mid to late kind of 2000s, as you were saying, up to sort of 2015, 2016, all the way up to 2018, property shop house prices started to really quadruple and started getting to be very, very expensive. Labor costs were also going up all the time, partly because the hotel industry grew very, very strongly and partly because the government was encouraging wage growth in the industry. and therefore. Wages were probably increasing in order of 10, 20% every year. Every year, our margins got a bit smaller. And at some point, I figured it was not optimal for us to run boutique hotels anymore relative to the value of the, the property. So we sold off a few of our hotels, 1929 and Wanderlust. And the, what used to be New Majestic is now the Straits Clan Club because we leased it out. It made more sense for me to lease it out. I got better returns leasing it out than I did running a hotel. So we have exited the hotel game because the margins started getting squeezed. If I looked at the return on our investments in the early years, they were fantastic. It's very hard to make in Singapore's context relative to the value of the property now. It's very hard to make decent returns on, on boutique hotels. You probably find that it's much more of a vanity game now than an economic game. 
So can we infer from this that the F&B space uh, is something that offers potentially higher returns compared to the hotel industry? I don't know. To be honest, F&B is a very, very difficult game. Everyone who uh, has studied the sector knows that it's a very much a wafer-thin margin, very volatile. And I don't do F&B necessarily to make money. A lot of it was I, how I got into F&B in Singapore was because we were doing the hotels. And when you do hotels, you need restaurants, right? So my first few restaurants, were, it was Ember in 1929, and Majestic and the New Majestic, were wildly successful. And from um, those kind of early successes, we branched off into other restaurants. So I became an accidental restaurateur, really. I didn't really mean to get into the restaurant game. But once we sold off the hotels, I still had this large portfolio of restaurants. And we had all these important stakeholders with us, our chefs and things like that. So I didn't want to give it up or just shut it down or anything. And they were, the restaurants were still successful, but they're not really a core part of my business. But they are important sort of thing in, in that I have a lot of responsibilities to stakeholders in it. So we've, we've kept the restaurants going and we're still reasonably successful in opening them. But do I see a long game in, in opening the type of restaurants we do in terms of maybe not, but they are fun to do and they are successful in their own sort of right. But I'm not sure that they are super scalable. We're not a McDonald's brand. If you look at our restaurant portfolio, they're full of Michelin stars and 50 best restaurants. They're very, very top-heavy fine dining. They're all signature-type flagship restaurants. And that's something we started out doing because we had hotels. And if you look at our overseas hotels, we still have those kind of flagship restaurants. In London, we have a two-Michelin-star restaurant. In Sydney, we have two-hat restaurant. Our restaurants are sort of fine dining, top-heavy flagship-type restaurants for the reasons that we needed them in the hotels. And that legacy has been left with us in Singapore. But that type of restaurant group isn't necessarily very scalable. So we do them for reasons other than economic returns, I guess. Although the economic returns, we still got to make sure they are sustainable. But this type of restaurant groups where we are doing all Michelin, high-end, fine dining, it's not particularly scalable. It's a very unique experience and I think we're very fortunate in Singapore to be able to experience so many of the restaurants that you have opened here. Ping, you mentioned something about the sweet spot in your comments earlier about boutique hotels in the early noughties. And perhaps this is an idea I'd like to explore further. In the coming years, where do you think the sweet spot is going to be? We've heard a lot of terms being bandied around, slow tourism, digitalization, sustainability, hotel offices. These are some of the ideas that have popped up quite frequently in terms of longer term trends and the future of hospitality. Given your insights and your experience in your portfolio, do you see any of these trends or behavioral shifts gaining further traction over the next five years? And what are the interesting patterns or sweet spots that you think would emerge? It's pretty hard to read where the market is going at the moment. What I've observed certainly in the last maybe six to nine months is that our countryside hotels have bounced back very strongly. Our urban hotels have not, even where markets have largely opened and what I've observed also is that there's a rush towards uh, the higher end of the market. They seem to have done much better than the lower end of or the mid end of the market. I think that's partly because during this period, the rich have gotten richer. And when they've been able to spend the money, they are avoiding the urban hotels. If you look at the whether it's the UK or Ireland or Europe and America, a lot of the countries kind of relay and chateau, those type of properties have done, they've bounced back a lot stronger, whether it's rates or occupancy. The urban hotels are having a much harder time because I think they rely much more on business travel. They rely much more on the mice market, those type of things. 
So the leisure has been a runaway success during this period. And I don't know whether that will flip when in the maybe a year and a half, two years' time when sort of the urban business travel market starts to return, if it does return in a strong way in, in that year and a half. Because at the moment, people still aren't going to offices. They're not traveling for work. But they're traveling for leisure where they have been allowed to. So if you look at a lot of the big companies, they're still not sanctioning their staff traveling for work. But the same staff will travel for holidays because they're allowed to. We have this odd disconnect, but that may change in the next year and a half. And I do feel that if you are still invested in the business, hotel, the luxury side of the urban hotel sector, probably that side will eventually bounce back in the next year or so. But I think if I look at our own portfolio, our hotels that do have a bit of the sort of things like wedding market are doing very well because, again, what we're observing is for the last year and a half, everyone was postponing weddings. And suddenly now everyone is trying to do weddings. And I think you'll see that happening in Singapore too, whether or not the international travel comes back. The minute the government continues to lift measures, probably one of the things that hotels will do is they'll pivot all their banqueting things from mice to weddings. We are seeing a huge <laughs> demand for weddings in our businesses in UK, in Ireland, in Australia, in the periods where they've been allowed to open up. So I think, you know, whether or not I can't read that in terms of what specific sectors in the future going forward, but I can certainly see in the, in the medium term what's going to succeed. And we're trying to position ourselves for that medium term. But I think the longer term will require adjustments to be made where we can see the business side of travel, which is a very, very important part of the sector for hotels, how they bounce back. Because I think if the business travel doesn't bounce back in a very strong way, a lot of business models will need to change in terms of the type of hotels that are there. If you look at the Marriott's and all their positioning, the Hyatt's, the Marriott's, their positioning in terms of business travel will have to change drastically if, if that doesn't come back, if the travel market for business doesn't travel back very strongly in the next nine months to a year. But certainly in the medium term, I think there's a lot of interesting segments of the market to be tapped for hotels that are adaptable enough and quick enough to kind of make the switch. Ping, turning to what's currently on your plate, are you able to share with us, if possible, some of the more interesting projects and concepts that you are exploring at this present moment? We are repositioning a few of our sort of uh, hotel and restaurant brands and acquiring certain hotels and, and restaurants in order to try and capitalize on this, what we feel is the midterm sort of opportunities. So recently, we purchased a hotel called the Casa Mata in Ireland. Again, very similar to another hotel there called Sheen Falls. It's countryside hotels, very much focused on the luxury side of the retreats and also weddings and, and those type of events. And that's, we purchased it about a month ago. It's doing very well because, as I said, <laughs> the weddings for the next year and a half, because of the pent-up demand, is, is very strong. And we are seeing a lot of travelers coming back to kind of luxury countryside hotels. And that's partly domestic, that's partly international too. And American travelers, they're observing, are starting to come back, even though there are a lot of restrictions on them. So people are just fed up with being stuck at home and being told not to travel. We are seeing that sort of leisure, high-end leisure travel starting again. The people who are paying rates of 250 to 500 euros a, a night sort of market is coming back much stronger than the middle of the market. So we're trying to position ourselves in that, in the hotel space. In terms of restaurants, we are trying to avoid the kind of restaurants we used to do in the past that were very trendy, counter dining, very closely packed. It doesn't work in today's market. Restaurants like Burn Ends, we're moving it. We're going to larger premises where we can be better socially distanced, where we can 
make sure that our capacity doesn't get killed when social distancing kicks in. Because I think this social distancing thing, this occasional lockdowns could happen for the next two or three years. Every time there's a variant that comes along, there will be caution from the regulators and they might well demand that we have social distancing and things like that for very, very extended periods of time. And therefore, the type of restaurants we used to operate in the past, which were really you packed them in cheek by jowl, right? Because that was the atmosphere you wanted to create. Those type of restaurants, it may be very, very hard to operate for the next two, three years with uh, different COVID restrictions. So we are trying to make sure that we are able to operate our restaurants optimally, even if there are fairly strict sort of social distancing measures in place. Ping, thank you very much for those very interesting insights. To wrap up today's discussion, I'm going to ask you a series of rapid-fire questions. Do give me the first one-word response that comes to your mind when you hear these. COVID? Disaster. <laughs> Singapore? Resilient. Hotels? Tricky. F&V? Rising again. Growth markets? Very strong. Risks? Very, uh, very. <laughs> Everything's <laughs> risky now, right? Every investment <laughs> I do now, I have to think very hard. Yes, indeed. Favorite restaurant? Oof, that's a hard one. That's like asking me to choose my favorite child. Can I skip? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you have to give a careful response here. <laughs> Michelin, maybe. <laughs> Holiday destination at the top of my list. Ireland. Well, on that happy note, thank you, Ping, for your insights and takeaways. Singapore's decision to live with COVID as an endemic virus and cautiously reopen borders has paved the way for the hospitality sector to stage a strong comeback in the next one to two years. And as we have heard from Ping, other markets are also doing the same and are also adapting to the new environment. In previous crises like SARS, as well as the global financial crisis, the speed of the rebound can be fast and furious once confidence returns. Our discussion with Ping today leaves us optimistic that the Singapore's hospitality players will emerge stronger and nimbler from the pandemic. I would say that the golden age of hospitality has only just begun. Thank you for listening to this episode of Beyond Markets. Do subscribe to our podcast series on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. From all of us at Julius Bear, thank you and goodbye for now. You have been listening to Beyond Markets by Julius Bear. If you like what you heard, subscribe to our show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen. To learn more about Julius Bear, our people, our latest thinking, visit us at www.juliusbear.com. We will be back with a brand new episode soon. This is a podcast disclaimer. The information and opinions expressed in this podcast constitute marketing material and are not the result of independent financial or investment research. The podcast content is intended for information purposes only and does not constitute an offer, a recommendation or an invitation by or on behalf of Julius Baer to buy or sell any securities, security-based derivatives or other products or to participate in any particular trading strategy in any jurisdiction. Julius Baer does not accept liability for any loss arising from the use of the podcast content. Please refer to www.juliusbear.com forward slash legal forward slash podcasts for further important legal information.